Welcome to Crypto and Grill. That's Crypto and Grill. It's Crypto Dantes here, and I am joined by Stig of the Pump yet again. How are you, Stig? Uh, I'm, mate, I'm really good today. Really good. How are you doing? I'm, I'm really well. I'm very excited about our guest. We've got yet another wonderful guest with us today. And this is someone who, um, I don't think she knows this actually, but this is someone who I often troll on Twitter with Terminator-based gifts um, because my personal <laughs> belief is that she's been sent back through time to save the world from economic destruction. She is the Sarah Connor of Wyoming. It's Caitlin Long. <laughs> hey guys, thank you. Boy, I didn't know that. That's that's great to learn. I, I, thank you. I, I do have to apologize about him. We try and like stop him from doing stuff like that, but <laughs> he's not very good at accepting feedback. <laughs> I, I listen to feedback. I just uh, I just I'm not interested. Um. <laughs> well, when you're no. driven by by principles, it it's, it oftentimes means that you will go out and and you know find people who are similarly <laughs> of like mind and yeah. and support them. So absolutely. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if I could count his bad humor as a principle, but uh, <laughs> I get where you're going. <laughs> no, exactly it's exactly what I needed really to hear. It's, a raise, it's really amazing to have you on. Thank you so much for taking oh, the time. Oh, my pleasure. To, Thanks. To Thanks, joining us. So, um, yeah, thank you for coming. And we've got um, quite a lot that we wanted to get through. I know you've you've spoken a lot about these uh, the topics that we're going to cover today. Um, but just for context, our, the mainly our listener base is um, is people that are relatively new to crypto um, and the whole point of our podcast and what we wanted to try and give back to the crypto space is just um, more understanding and a more accessible learning resource about what what Bitcoin is, what cryptocurrencies um, offer the world um, and how it fits into the, the context of, um, of the, the world we live in. Um, so it would be great to kick this one off with just an introduction about from yourself, your, your previous career uh, and what you did before you, came, uh, you became full-time uh, crypto. Sure. I uh, grew up in Wyoming and uh, spent 22 years on Wall Street. Uh, discovered Bitcoin through libertarian circles in 2012. Uh, like so many people, were skeptical about it in the beginning and did a lot of digging into it before I finally jumped in and then uh, left in 2016 uh, for Morgan Stanley, where I had been running the pension business, to go into full-time crypto and uh, spent 18 months at a startup called Symbiant. And earlier this year, left that and I've been working on passion projects in my native state of Wyoming ever since, plus writing for Forbes.com. Excellent. And, and what was it that first sparked your interest then? Uh, so I know um, from looking into your uh, your background that you used to have quite a relatively senior job on, on, on Wall Street. What was the point at which you were, you were in your normal job that you came across Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and there was that aha moment and you thought, OK, I need to take this seriously and, and go down the rabbit hole and uh, look into it more? 
Well, it, it actually dates back to the financial crisis. I didn't discover Bitcoin in um, the, during the financial crisis, even though that's when Satoshi released the white paper. And there is de very definitely a connection between the two. It was four years later for me, but the, the origin of how I was on the mailing list, if you will, and following people in, in social media is my curious curiosity about what happened really in the financial crisis. The mainstream explanation stopped making sense and I realized something was really wrong with the economics education that I'd been given. And a lot of what I'd learned was just not correct in the real world. And so I went down on a, uh, on a deep dive through lots of different economic schools of thought. And the aha moment, the first aha moment was when I started to read about the Austrian school explanation for the credit crisis. And uh, it basically the gist is that the most important price in the economy is the interest rate. And when governments and central banks specifically mess around with interest rates, they create, they cause misallocations of capital. And uh, it, that's why you saw the so-called cluster of errors, why everybody was during the financial crisis or in the lead up to it, making the same bad investment decision in the same bad direction. Um, and in a normal market, that just doesn't happen. So why is it that they all made this, the same mistake at the same time? And it's because interest rates were giving incorrect signals because interest rates are manipulated by governments. That's essentially the Austrian view of the world. And um, it, it, it was the Austrian school that got into Bitcoin fairly early on. The two two camps were, of course, the the hardcore computer science cryptography group that wasn't necessarily driven by the economics. And then there were the folks like me who were driven by the economics and very curious about understanding what was going to come next. Clearly, Satoshi Nakamoto was a combination of those two. And that's what's so so special about what Satoshi created. In, in, at the end of the day, he, she, or they solved a computer science problem by applying economic theory. And uh, it's those two camps that ended up being married uh, when and, and got Bitcoin to where it was when I discovered it in 2012. Amazing. And so, what was the what was the reaction? then, I guess did you did you try to convince? I think it was was it Morgan Stanley that you worked for that that you know look mm -hmm. guys, there's something serious here. We need to invest in this. Or was it, um, it was it just not really on anybody's radar? Um, and because I guess the lead into the next question is, uh, where are we at the moment, and how does Wall Street see Bitcoin? Sure. Yeah, in in the early days, I kept my head down. I I figured, you know, what Jamie Dimon said a few months back that he would fire anyone who was involved uh, in in Bitcoin. Um, I was afraid that that was indeed going to be the case at, at at Morgan Stanley, and indeed a lot of other banks had the same. A lot of a lot of the peers that I found at, at early Bitcoin meetups had the same um, fear of of popping their head up and. Uh, but but eventually a there was enough of a critical mass and we got a an internal forum going and then one day the chief technology officer called me he'd been watching the forum and saw I was a managing director running a business and and asked me to come up and talk to him about what this was all about that was that was early 2014 I believe and uh, around that time also I'd met the folks from Ripple who were the first people who were trying to apply the technology to the mainstream markets. And that was a light bulb moment for me because I realized it wasn't necessarily 
Bitcoin as we were experiencing it in early 2014 that was going to be the answer. There may be other alternatives. The funny thing is, since then, I've actually kind of come full circle that that true blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum are ultimately going to be the ones that win out. But that doesn't mean that we aren't going to create a lot of value with the intermediate type steps like a like a ripple. Um, uh, and, and when I say true blockchain, I, I, I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that back then they weren't even using XRP. They were pitching it as a, 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 a an alternative to SWIFT um, mm. that would have been like an enterprise blockchain. Um, and, and so uh, that wasn't a true blockchain. Um, and again, the way they were pitching it back then was not to use the cryptocurrency. Of course, it's evolved that the cryptocurrency is very critical to the, the Ripple platform as we know it today. But back then, that wasn't how they were pitching it. And, um, yeah. you know, the enterprise piece definitely was the mantra for a few years there, the blockchain, not Bitcoin. But like Jimmy Song has come around full circle, I have as well after having spent time, both of us had spent time at enterprise platforms hmm. and realized, no, you, you know, the true blockchains are actually the, where the real value is. And I think everybody goes through that at, at some point, actually. I found myself increasingly more towards that. You know, you start to understand Bitcoin and then it's this aha moment. And then you think, yeah. oh my mm -hmm. God, there's thousands of these. I need to know about all of these other ones um, and what they do and how they add value. And then you kind of go full circle and you think, no, actually, no, there's a, a couple of core, uh, you know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, and maybe there's a few others out there that are yep. emerging that mm. we need to, to take notice of. But the rest are, as, as Safe calls them, just shit coins and they're all going to zero. So, um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's interesting what you said about Ripple as well, because there's so much, um, there's, there's a split camp. Some people love Ripple, some people hate Ripple, and especially, you know, in the Twitter forums and all of the uh, social media spaces, it's really a love or hate. And my view actually is, well, you know, I, I can see the value in both, I can uh, both arguments, but for me, Ripple and XRP represents um, an enhancement to an existing um, system. And until that system is broken uh, and until, you know, Bitcoin as a settlement um, network is used and there's other layer two, layer three um, transaction networks that can compete at the speed of Visa and you've got Bitcoin transferring value around the world in a huge scale, then there is over the next few years, there is going to be a real value for the, the Ripple um, offering. So, um, yeah, it's, um, sure. it's a really interesting space. Uh, and I, could, I, I don't could... disagree. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say I couldn't agree more. There's also a sort of a personal side to me around Ripple is because Ripple actually was the first thing that ever got me into crypto when way back when when it was launching. So there is, it's interesting actually hearing your perspective on from another side around that time of when Ripple was launching as well. Um, does Wall Street have a very different view from something like Bitcoin to XRP to Ethereum, let's say, or does does it actually just lump everything generically together and kind of use it as one asset class? No, I think Wall Street is still on the blockchain, not Bitcoin bandwagon, but we are seeing the early um, move away from that. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with um, it, it, the, the Bank Secrecy Act requirements, know your customer, anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism financing. The, the, the banking industry is, is, is still pretty much giving the Heisman, um, which is an American phrase that essentially says, you know, we're putting up a stop sign. Um, the banking industry really around the world, but especially in the United States, just doesn't want to bank crypto companies. That's that's something I'm working on. But um, that that means the compliance departments at um, securities firms are looking at it essentially the same way. So 
that you know they were certainly looking at blockchain, not Bitcoin. And 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 I do believe there will be good things that come out of blockchain, not Bitcoin. And even some of the altcoins, they all have a right to exist. They're all out there competing, um, each one with their own twist on the technology that may end up um, being being um, useful. But my sense is that. Bitcoin's got such a head start and Ethereum now as well um, that the network effects that they built are so strong that if something happens in the altcoin world or these alternative versions that really truly is superior from a technology perspective, they'll just get rolled into Bitcoin and Ethereum um, yep. and uh, over time and as, as upgrades. And so um, I, I think we may not recognize Bitcoin. Frankly, uh, the t developers tell me that most of the original code that Satoshi wrote is no longer in the Bitcoin um, code base. And, and that's simply because it's been upgraded over time. And, and so maybe Satoshi wouldn't recognize Bitcoin today. I don't know. But 20 years from now, I think none of us will recognize it if we actually looked under the hood because it will have been upgraded so much. But we'll still call it Bitcoin. That, that's my guess. But I, do, I don't. Um, use the word shitcoin because I don't hmm. want to discourage folks from the experimentation. I, I think all of it is great. Yeah. I, I, so, I, and I think I'm definitely in the school of thought, and I, I think my friend Edmund here is as well. That at the end of this, what you're probably going to end up with is a is very few stores of value as mm -hmm. uh, as a digital asset or a digital currency, a few payment types, and then the majority the majority of them will be utility tokens. But the utility tokens are equally important in their own right because yes. ultimately their purpose is to drive and incentivize a marketplace or a market in a very very different way to, that's ever become before, and. There's, a, there's some really, really good work by, I know Bill Gurley wrote, has written lots about um, marketplaces and market factors. And actually, we're starting to see a new one, which is how do you create decentralized assets and how do you use them to drive markets? Um, and I, I certainly believe that I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to end up seeing will be around that in the future. But what those will look like, I think we're only just at the start of. Oh, my, yes. And, and, and you asked earlier about Wall Street. It's fascinating mm. because naturally, I think financial markets should be peer-to-peer -peer decentralized markets, right? It's mm. issuers interacting with investors. That's not to say that there won't be intermediaries that add value. There are always going to be banks that arrange and structure issuance of securities, whether they're in token form or traditional form. But you don't, you don't need, you certainly don't need all these layers of intermediaries that you have in the current settlement system for the legacy financial system. So I think we will actually move toward, even in institutional markets, decentralized um, it, it, platforms where issuers and investors can interact directly. And there are marketplaces where, like, exchange, like the exchanges exist today, where you can go to, to transact, but you won't have the the um, the skimming of value that takes place in the system in the in the legacy system today um, between issuer and investor by all these intermediaries that that uh, stand in between will have a, a far superior system and I think for your listeners who are thinking about the evolution of these markets we will see the traditional city or Wall Street prod, uh, products coming in crypto form. And what's going to what's going to happen is that everybody's going to have to become experts in their settlement system. The, I just spoke to the CFA Institute about the impact of all of this on equity research and laid out 
you know, look, I used to be an equity research analyst. We just looked at the companies, right? It was all about the cash flows and the profitability of the companies and the, you know, growth prospects, et cetera. But the, we're now going to have to add, how are these securities going to settle? Because if it's in the old legacy system, that's got a different character of risk than if it's if the security was issued in crypto form, in a token form. And uh, I actually think, and I can't wait, frankly, until we get an issuer issuing the, these two things side by side um, so that we actually can, can compare whether the crypto version of the exact same security is going to trade at a different level than the traditional version of the exact same security. My prediction is that the new settlement systems are so far superior that the, the, the security tokens are going to be more valuable than the existing securities. All else equal. I, I, do, you know, do you know, I agree with you completely. I think you do as well, Stig. And, and there, there's one particular technology that, um, that I'm a particular fan of that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to shill it here, but, you know, I think mm -hmm. what it does is offers a real solution to, you know, the two to three day trade settlements um, mm -hmm. that it takes uh, when you execute a trade in um, in the markets today. Um, that could be done with this new technology within minutes and all secured mm -hmm. and um, yeah. on the blockchain in, in a much more efficient manner. And that's just, that's just common sense you know making um bringing oh, yeah. you know technological innovation to a system that has been very good for 30 40 years or however long it's been around but now is is quite quite frankly outdated and um i think there's only good things to come if you if you start to adopt these new practices and, and imagine what and then if you talk about the wider world imagine what that's going to do to emerging markets where they don't actually really have the base infrastructure anyway to do this properly what what this free technology infrastructure is going to give them is going to be amazing amazing yeah but you know it's interesting that the the two to three day settlement that we have in the traditional financial system is not a function of technology years ago the technology was there to be able to provide near instant settlement for transactions. So why didn't we? Why has it been, you know, forcing the banks, um, kicking and screaming to, to go from T plus three to T plus two? Why can't we go to even T plus zero, right? That would be a huge improvement because yeah. mom and pop would take less counterparty risk. You don't need a blockchain for that. But mm -hmm. the reason why it hasn't happened is because there are people benefiting from the delays in the system. And it's all the securities lending desks, the prime brokers, the um, short sellers, the rehypothecation, all of that, that, um, that, that basically the banks make money off this. And so the, the, the downside is that inherently it forces all of us in the legacy system to take counterparty risk that most of us don't realize we have. When we buy a security or when we send a payment, um, we, we basically send that money off, but we don't know that we're going to get the value back. In the case of a security, we buy a share of Apple stock. It's, we don't get that share back for two days, right? So we've got the risk that the broker-dealer like Lehman Brothers or MF Global goes bust in, those two day, in that two-day period, and then we become a general creditor of the company. That is indeed how the current system works. Why we force that on regular folks is a, a vestige of history. And, it's, and the reason why it hasn't been fixed now is because the banks don't want it to be fixed. So yeah. that's why I thought, um, back to your earlier question about the adoption curve for blockchain on Wall Street, I thought that that argument of let's, let's, let's get the cost efficiencies of blockchain and speed up settlement cycles would actually be 
something that Wall Street players would want, but I've learned they don't want that. And in fact, what's going to happen, I think, is that the crypto-based securities, specifically crypto-issued security tokens, right? It might be Apple shares, but issued on a blockchain. Those are going to do an end run around the existing system. And uh, I think traditional players aren't going to know what hit them. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, Caitlin. And so just thinking um, a bit more specifically then about where we are at the moment, um, there's two products I was really hoping to get your viewpoint on and just hear a bit more about uh, and help, I guess, the, the listeners understand. That's the backed product that's going mm -hmm. live um, on the 12th of December uh, 2018 and the Vanek Solidex ETF and I just wanted to get your views on um, what they bring to the system uh, the, uh, the ecosystem the space and um, what benefits they will bring and also perhaps what challenges and I think slightly leading the witness there because I think the next question <laughs> is going to be into the, the risk of rehypothecation but if we could start um, just understanding a bit more about what BACT is and, and what the Vanek Solidex ETF is that would be a great great place to begin. Sure. They're both products that allow you to buy Bitcoin through your stockbroker. That's the gist. Um, one, one is uh, futures. That's a futures contract that's going to be settled in, in actual Bitcoin. That's the backed uh, platform. And the other is an ETF, that um, neither of which is live now, as you said, but both are, are coming and likely to be live. Um, and that is a physical settled ETF. Some of your listeners might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought the Bitcoin ETF or Bitcoin um, futures have been around for a while. Yes, the CME and CBOE have actually had cash settled Bitcoin futures for almost a year now. Um, but cash settled futures, it, basically, it's all about cash, right? It's people spending cash and just betting on the Bitcoin price and then they settle the transaction in cash. When you get into a physical settled contract, it's a completely different ballgame because now you're trying to hybridize the existing Wall Street settlement system with the Bitcoin settlement system. And those two things are very different. Um, and so you asked about the, the benefits. The biggest benefit, of course, is, you know, a lot of folks want to be able to buy Bitcoin through their stockbroker. The biggest problem is that they think they're going to be buying Bitcoin, but they're not buying Bitcoin at all. And what they're buying is an IOU. And I, I think there are going to be accidents in, in this whole um, move to hybridize these two systems because the traditional Wall Street system is a delayed net settle system through lots of leveraged intermediaries. And it tends to hold uh, securities in fungible pooled form, not in your own customer's name. Um, but uh, the crypto system, of course, doesn't work that way at all. It's everything settled, gross, in, in near real time, and there's real value for value exchange. Otherwise, the trade doesn't happen. So you, you actually have natural tendency towards unsettled trades in the existing system, whereas the crypto system settles everything instantly. When you try to combine those two systems, you're going to end up with timing mismatches. You're going to end up with dropped balls. You're going to end up with... Uh, lots of confusion over forks. There's, I think, there are going to be lots of lawsuits in the in these hybrids. Uh, so they're they're de they definitely bring some benefits, but they also definitely bring a lot of risks. And everyone should go in eyes wide open that there are going to be problems. Uh, and uh, yet, I also recognize not everyone wants to hold their pri their own private keys. Yep. So um, if you want to be able to participate without having to hold your private keys 
um, then that, you know, this is one way to do it. But I would caution if you think you own Bitcoin through your stockbroker, you really don't make sure you understand that. And um, I I do believe just to to wrap up this comment, there are going to be big divergences in the price of these hybrid products relative to the underlying Bitcoin spot price. Um, And we can go into that in greater detail, maybe a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. just beware that, that, you know, the ETF that you own might not track the actual Bitcoin price well at all. There are lots of circumstances I can think of where that might happen. So just go in eyes wide open. Okay, fantastic. And so um, where that brings me on to then is this notion that you've discussed previously and one that we've actually uh, discussed with a couple of guests around rehypothecation of assets. Now, that mm-hmm. to me was a brand new term. I'm not an economist or a, I don't have a finance background. And I think you were the first person that I heard talking about it. Um, I was really excited about the backed products and the ETF. And um, I think you, you completely took the wind out of my sails when I heard you, I think it was with Laura Shin, um, urging uh, caution against it, because there is this notion that um, that you can overinflate um, the number of shares, perhaps, that are, that are available for purchase on the open market. And um, so it was when you articulated that, that I, I was a bit concerned. Um, it would be good to just understand, start from the beginning a bit more about that and understand a bit more about the, the rehypothecation issue and how that might transpire in, um, into what you've just said there, unless you own the private keys, you don't own the coins. Yeah, it, it actually builds on the previous answer about the indirect way that Wall Street and the city and all the, the stock markets around the world have um, hold securities on behalf of their customers. Um, if we stop, start at the most base level, we think we own shares in our brokerage accounts or our retirement accounts. And the truth is we don't. What we own is an IOU from our broker-dealer. And in turn, they own an IOU from their custodian. And in turn, the custodian owns an IOU from the legal owner, the registered owner of securities, which in the US is the DTC and in Europe is um, Euroclear and Clearstream, et cetera, et cetera. This indirect ownership model where you have these layers of intermediaries between you and the actual legal owner of the shares um, is is the standard model in the world. And it's a function again of uh, a vestige of history that at one time that system made sense uh, and at one time, you know, settling transactions on a delayed net basis um, made sense because we didn't have the technology to be able to settle everything in real time and on a gross basis. We wanted financial institutions to be able to settle quickly. So we basically said to them, all right, you can hold everything in your own name and settle your debits and credits, you know, periodically on a net basis, which typically happens once a day. So basically, if you buy a share of Apple stock, what it means is your broker is not actually buying that for you. They're going to they're going to settle up at the end of the day between all of their customers who bought and sold Apple shop, Apple stock. And if they have a net credit or a net debit with their other counterparty, they will only send the difference to their other counterparty. So what you have is basically all these sort of traffic stops along the way that cause the delays in settlement of securities transactions. That's why, as I said earlier, it's taking two days. Um, so why, how does rehypothecation fit into all of this? What happens is that virtually no securities in the securities markets ever stand still. They're constantly being lent out. They're constantly being 
um, you know, bought and sold in ETF buckets. They are constantly on the move. Um, unless you own your paper certificate, you have no way to opt out of that. Um, your, the shares in your brokerage account aren't sitting, sitting stable. They are constantly on the move behind the scenes in these omnibus accounts. And in what I just described to you, where you've got this indirect ownership model, they're not keeping track of the shares with your name on them. It's delayed, net settled. It's a recipe for inaccuracy in the books and records of Wall Street. And we've seen lots of examples of that. Um, and of course, the inaccuracies um, in the books and records never underestimate the number of shares outstanding. They always overissue over the number of shares outstanding because the brokers make money trading shares. So they have a natural tendency to want to inflate the number of shares outstanding. And that, that, that example you referred to, the Dole Food case, is actually a great exhibit A. It was a case where there were uh, more than one third the number of actual shares outstanding were legally issued in the form of Wall Street claims on Dole Food shares. So in essence, what happened, there was a class action lawsuit. And uh, in order to, to claim the extra money that every Dole Food shareholder was due, they had to file their brokerage statements. And when all the brokerage statements got filed and they added them up, there was more than one third more valid brokerage statements showing ownership of Dole Food shares than there were actual legally issued and outstanding Dole Food shares. And, and that's how much the Wall Street system created um, in valid claims to shares that never existed. And I, I've seen that multiple times in my career, it, and it just hit me in the gut. This is an, fundamentally an inaccurate system, and, it, and it's funda fundamentally un unstable and unfair because um, the true shareholders of Dole had their pockets picked in that situation. There are lots of other similar examples out there. Um, but the gist is it's inherent in the system that regular investors are forced to take counterparty risk and are forced to accept the inaccuracy in the bookkeeping system. And it is a game of three card Monty. You can call it, you know, shell game, Ponzi scheme, whatever you want to say, but that's inherently the way the settlement systems of the securities industry works. Not necessarily nefariously. I do want to say that because those terms I just threw out. Yeah. Um, all seem very nefarious. It's not necessarily nefarious. And frankly, I think a lot of people on Wall Street, if they could get around this, would actually try to quantify these things better. The problem is there are so many layers and so much indirect ownership and so much net settling that no one has any idea how much over issuance of securities is actually happening until you get a reckoning event like that merger in the Dole situation. And it's so one of the things that's really, really clear about this space is that uh, the more actually, and I've certainly found it, the more and more you dig into it, the more and more you basically get a life lesson in economics and the history of money and the history of markets. Yes. And kind of stepping back from this, then we're 10 years past from the financial crisis. And the point that you always end up getting to if you end up in the crypto space and focused on it is that you suddenly see all of these rising levels, still permanently rising levels of corporate debt, national debt, personal debt. And one of the big long-term cases for uh, for Bitcoin as a store of value is that are we heading towards a bit of a cliff face with regards to the debt crisis and liquidity crisis? Um, 
it'd be great to get some of your views because I know you've got a, a lot about what happens when governments continue to print money and this liquidity crisis that we may be facing us. Or are we one? In, are we facing one at all in the first place? Well, yes, um, but the traditional economists would would vehemently disagree with that. Um, there are again these alternative schools of economic thought, um, both on the far left and the far right, incidentally, sort of, you know, both in the, uh, to use U.S. Um, examples, both in the Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul camps politically, um, they both agree that there is a debt problem. And, you know, it's really only the Paul Krugmans of the world um, who would say, no, it's not a debt problem at all. Um, and, and the argument that they would use that stopped making sense to me is that we owe it to ourselves um, but the truth of the matter is, if you look at the U.S., we rely on foreigners to purchase about 40 percent of the treasuries that we issue. So we don't really owe it to ourselves. The marginal buyer is who sets the price of any um, the marginal buyer and seller of any asset are who sets the price. Right. So when you think about government bonds, it's who's who's going to buy the next one that really matters. And when you rely on foreigners for 40 percent of it, um, it's pretty clear we don't really owe it to ourselves. And mm -hmm. Um, so at some point, we're going to hit a debt ceiling. And there's no question in my mind um, that that's not going to be a pretty situation. The reason why, um, to, to criticize the Austrians a little bit, even though I think they've gotten this mostly right, the reason why um, they have been sort of sounding like a broken clock, yelling and screaming about uh, uh, currency collapse coming for the last you know 40 years, but they haven't been correct yet, yet being the operative word, the reason why that's it's been sustained for 40 years is actually more than that. Now it's Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard in 1971, but the reason the reason why uh, it hasn't happened is because we actually had a tremendous balance sheet. There wasn't actually any net debt on the U.S.'s balance sheet until 1968. There was, of course, debt, but what it meant was there was somebody in the United States who was saving for every dollar of debt that was borrowed in the United States. So essentially it was owed to ourselves, but it stopped being owed to ourselves, stopped being financed by real savings um, in 1968. Uh, and then of course, Nixon admitted that in 1971, we didn't collapse yet because we had no debt on our balance sheet, but, but the baby boom generation has been living high on the hog, far outliving the, the economic value that they are producing. Um, and they've been doing so by borrowing from future generations. And at some point, we are going to hit that debt ceiling because we don't owe it all to ourselves. And, um, and, and it, uh, it is ultimately been um, subsidized. It has been subsidized by, uh, by China and um, by Germany and, you know, the, the, the current account surplus of, of countries of the world have been lending to the current account deficit countries of the world for decades. Yeah. Uh, and it's the middle class in, in those countries that have that have, are really going to suffer because they lost purchasing power by transferring it over to profligate American baby boomers. <laughs> and at some point, that's all going to um, reverse. Yeah. So, uh, so probably for our listeners, um, could you just go into a little bit around what an actual a sort of national balance sheet is um, and kind of as a concept, but also then how much space that you think there is left? How much longer can that balance sheet continue to exist? Sure. I look at debt not entirely on a government basis. I realize, you know, lots of folks yeah. are used to looking at government debt, but you have to look at the entire amount of debt in the economy relative to the 
unencumbered assets, in other words, debt that hasn't actually been pledged, or sorry, assets that haven't been pledged against debt yet. If you think about a balance sheet, it's the difference between the assets and your liabilities is what your net worth is. The same is true at an aggregate level for a country. It's, um, but it, the, the critical point is it's not just the government debt. It's also the private sector debt um, and the household debt that matters. And when you add all of those things up, uh, the United States is still solvent. Um, we still have um, a, a several trillion dollars uh, difference between the asset value and the total aggregate debt outstanding. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the dollar hasn't hit that proverbial wall yet. But uh, we are um, keeping GDP elevated in the U.S. by borrowing um, two and a half to three trillion dollars of new non-financial sector debt every year in the United States. Uh, and we are not saving that much. So we are continuing to draw down that balance sheet every year by a couple trillion dollars. And um, so I look at it and say, you know, this can keep going for a while, uh, but uh, it's not going to be, I think, I think we're going to hit that proverbial wall likely during my lifetime. It could happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It could happen 20 years from now. Um, the, the precipitating event is, is always impossible to predict, but you know, you can predict long-term trends and it's very clear by looking at the balance sheet of the, of the developed world that it's, it's over leveraged and it's not going to end well. Yeah. So one of the points, uh, one of the points that we were talking about earlier was, um, between the two of us, uh, was, it's amazing actually to consider this, but has has Keynesian economics and the way that it's been structured actually succeeded? Because if you look at if you look at what happens across the globe, that investment that mankind has made by printing more and more money has ultimately had a massive positive effect around improving the quality of life for people. And I know it's probably going to hit us all. It's one of those things. Racking up debt is always a good thing at the time, but it's always a bad, bad thing longer term. Um, what are your thoughts around sort of how how debt has actually potentially been good for us for a period of time and what that what effect that may have on us going forward? Well, it's just like the analogy you made to your own personal situation. When you have debt capacity and you borrow, you can finance lots of fun vacations and, you know, a nicer home. And basically you can finance higher consumption for a brief period of time. And sure, that's a lot of fun. But eventually, you've got to pay it back, right? Um, and so, you know, it means basically you're borrowing from your future consumption to be able to consume today. That's what debt is. And there's no difference mm -hmm. at a at a, um, a, a at a country level. Um, you know, when a, when a country borrows or when businesses mm -hmm. borrow, what they're doing is borrowing against their future wealth and future income to be able to live higher today. Now, a startup, by definition has to do that, right? They have to borrow against their future earnings in order to get the business off the ground. So I'm not an anti-debt person by any stretch mm -hmm. of the matter. It, it's just that the debt has to, in order to be neutral on the economy, mm -hmm. A, you cannot have the, the central banks um, um, manipulating interest rates, which is the traffic cop uh, to every business in, in the world um, to, uh, to, to determine whether to invest or not and mm -hmm. to determine uh, for how long they should invest, whether it's just for three months or whether it's for 30 years. Interest rates are the signal that, that basically um, allocates capital across economies. And, and when it's not 
um, set by the the voluntary interaction of buyer of, of borrowers and and savers, um, then you create these you know these cluster of errors that I was talking about earlier, where all of a sudden everybody's over investing in real estate at the same time. Um, because, and, 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 and it's because the, the, the signals are all screwed up. The traffic light it has stopped working. Um, and so ultimately I think, um, that's the, uh, that, that's the issue, right? Is that, um, we've, we've basically in order to encourage GDP to be produced in the short term, we've, we've made it easy for everyone to borrow. Absolutely. There is economic activity that comes from that. The problem is it's economic activity that never would have been followed if interest rates had given an accurate signal. You wouldn't have had all this overinvestment in real estate, um, both in the UK and the US. It happened at the same time going into the financial crisis because they were both following the same economic policy of let's try to give the economy a shot in the arm by reducing interest rates. Well, of course, if you do that, uh, somebody's going to step up and borrow and they're going to hire workers and they're going to spend that money. But the problem is that eventually that demand is not going to show up and all those real estate projects were determined to be worthless, not worthless, but you know, the, the demand never, never materialized. And so um, something that they should never have invested in um, ultimately comes home to roost and you know, markets always win in the end. Now, you may be wondering, well, wait a minute, the market recovered, you know, all these properties that went through foreclosure after the financial crisis, you know, most of them are full now. Well, what happened is we actually had sufficient balance sheet to be able to ramp things up yet again by, by giving the economy this artificial shot in the arm. Um, and indeed, in my opinion, this is why we've been in a 40 plus year downtrend in interest rates. It's been a relentless downtrend because the central banks have constantly been giving the economies shots in the arm. And yet, um, eventually, they won't be able to do that. And I actually think that when interest rates go to zero and stay there for a, for a while, that's when you know we're pretty close to the end. Um, and, you know, look, you look at countries like Switzerland that have had negative interest rates for 10 years. Uh, you know, that that's that's a sign to me that that balance sheet is getting very tired, that mm -hmm. um, there's too much debt on the economy and there's not enough continued ability for the central bank to continue to drop interest rates and continue to encourage people to borrow just to spend for the sake of spending as opposed to actually truly investing in projects that will generate real, real economic wealth. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, so that really aligns actually with some of the things that we discussed with uh, Saifedean um, on our, our previous podcast uh, last week. So, um, yeah, thank Great. you. A um, couple of things actually, just um, moving the conversation before, because I know we're rapidly running out of time. I could talk to you all day. Um, if we could move it back towards Bitcoin. I wish we could. <laughs> if we could move it back towards Bitcoin slightly. Yeah. Um, one thing that we like to do with, with guests, and we haven't come up with a name um, yet, but I think I've just come up with one on the spot. So I'm going to call it No Coin or Bingo. Um, <laughs> so it's three things. I just got three questions um, that is um, the it's the typical things that you hear from people that either aren't close to the space or want specifically to close down a situation and say, you know, that, that crypto and, and Bitcoin is, is all a fraud and it's, uh, it's a scam. So uh, my three questions to you and, and the question is, how, how do you refute them or how would you respond to them? Governments can shut Bitcoin down. Bitcoin wastes energy and Bitcoin is too volatile to be a store of value. 
So taking the government one first, governments can shut Bitcoin down. How do you respond quickly and succinctly to um, to people that don't really understand the space with that? They can't. It's way too late. It's way too decentralized. It's way too global. Um, even if they shut down the entire Internet, they wouldn't be able to shut down the Bitcoin blockchain because it's operating on satellites around the world. Um, they could have to shut it down in the early years, but it's already too decentralized and it's not possible for them to shut it down now. Good That's why they haven't. <laughs> Good response. Bitcoin wastes energy. Uh, a lot of the energy that Bitcoin uses is actually coming from trapped energy that otherwise would go to waste. A couple of examples, hydro plants in China that are uh, sitting next to aluminum smelters that have been shut. Um, that that uh, but the dam was built and uh, that energy, since they don't have transmission wires to move it outside of that local area, that energy is literally being wasted. Now we actually can no, no longer have that waste and turn it into something of economic value. Same thing in Sweden because of the crazy EU rules. They produce more electricity than they use and can't put it back into the EU grid. Well, now the the um, hydro dams in Sweden actually have the ability to turn their um, their power that they generate into something of real economic value without running afoul of the crazy rules. A lot of the energy that is being consumed by Bitcoin is actually not energy that was consumable by anyone else for these reasons that I just alluded to. Mm -hmm. Last point on that, just like Saifedean would say, I'm unapologetic about uh, the cost uh, for, for two reasons. Um, A, we don't really know what the cost of creating trust in the current system is. How many lawyers and accountants and auditors and trustees and fiduciaries and asset custodians and county deed recorders do we pay in order to create trust? And what's their energy usage relative to what blockchains use? Um, and lastly, what makes the Bitcoin blockchain not hackable is, as I alluded to earlier, economics. It costs more money to, to add data to the Bitcoin blockchain than it does to verify the data once it's there. Um, and very importantly, it costs more for a hacker to hack it than they would gain from doing so. That's why it's safe. So I'm unapologetic about how much money it costs to add and energy it costs to, to add Bitcoin, add, add data to the Bitcoin blockchain. That's why it works. And I do believe that it, it economic, that from an energy perspective, it's actually a much more efficient way of creating trust than the status quo. I don't think we're going to get a better set of responses to those questions, however long we end up doing this podcast. I also love the um, I also love the latent energy point because one of the big sort of ventures that uh, Edmund and I keep on thinking about is are putting satellites into space with solar powers and mining rigs on so that we can have solar powered mining from space. Awesome. It's just a it's just a little project that we're thinking about. It may need uh, a, a, a lot of investment. <laughs> or Elon Musk to get involved. We may try and get yeah. him on to talk about it. But <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> uh amazing thank you so much so um and then i forgot your third question the thir yeah the, fi the final one well, uh, what was the third one i oh sorry I've, I've, <laughs> this isn't I've jumped the gun there this isn't the anthony pompliano podcast we're not going to talk about aliens and pets um so uh <laughs> let's rein it back from there but um no the third question was um bitcoin is too volatile to be a store of value ah uh, it, it, Bitcoin is a settlement system. A lot of the people who use Bitcoin for merchant processing don't ever end up touching Bitcoin. They just go through it. Uh, and I believe that uh, that a lot of the users of Bitcoin will increasingly look at it that way, where they're just using it as a settlement system, but not as a um, uh, not actually touching the Bitcoin itself. And as a result of that, the volatility just doesn't matter. 
let traders trade the volatility, but people who want to use it as an intermediary currency for settlement, they don't have to touch it and therefore the volatility doesn't matter. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so um, one question that uh, we, we wanted to shake things up with just before we finish here is yeah. um, we are the Crypto and Grill podcast. We like to keep uh, keep people on their toes um, from uh, taking views from people in the crypto space about what they like to grill and what their favorite cuts of meat are. So um, everybody in the crypto space, all of the cats and dogs from Twitter and the cartoon characters, all of the real investors have all descended in Wyoming and they've come around to your house, Caitlin. Uh, what are you going to grill to, uh, to keep them all satisfied? <laughs> Oh, I'm a good Wyoming girl uh, that who uh, is raised on Wyoming beef. So I'm 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 a beef girl, and I love porterhouse. Oh, amazing porterhouse! That was uh, that was again that was Safe's choice as well. I think we've had a couple <laughs> ah, of people choose porterhouse. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're going to be hosting you guys and cooking porterhouse. Good, yeah, good absolutely. Wyoming grass-fed beef. Well, you know, there's a business called Beef Chain out in Wyoming uh, that I'm in directly involved in, and it's to track Wyoming beef. And and a lot of it, you know, Wyoming cattle are grass-fed and naturally, and uh, and they because there's not a, a slaughterhouse in Wyoming, they get shipped out, out to you know Denver or South Dakota, and they get mixed up with cattle that are um, that are not grass-fed. So. There's a there, there's a very cool beef aspect of blockchain in Wyoming that uh, well, I'm very much um, hoping will work. Uh, well, as both, uh, that play, plays music to our ears because both of our backgrounds are heavily in supply chains. So awesome. Uh, well, I'll be looking into beef chain. If you ever need a like a casual bit of advice about supply chain efficiencies, then more than willing to come over to Wyoming and check out the beef there. <laughs> yeah, definitely come up, come on out. It's uh, it's it, you know it's grass fed, good, healthy stuff. Yum. so uh, moving on then to that from that is so what's what's in store for you for the next six to 12 months um and sort of what have you got on your place at the moment well i am writing a book about the interaction of wall street and bitcoin uh spending a lot of time um with institutional investors educating them uh, and working on getting institutional investment into this sector i actually am optimistic that over time that big institutional investors who originally dealt with self-custodying paper stock certificates, that they'll go back to self-custodying their assets when they're in crypto form and not have to use all these crazy intermediaries that ultimately got captured by folks who turned them into you know, rent-seeking ventures that hurt mom and pop. I think this will be great for mom and pop investors. And at the end of the day, that's what financial markets exist for. It, it's for mom and pop investors. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time, continue to spend a lot of time in the next six to 12 months on, on those topics. Uh, amazing, because this brings us really full circle to what we were talking about just before we came online, which is some of the adoption challenges. And uh, some of the challenges that, well, some of the things that I see a bit being the biggest movements in this space isn't necessarily the technology. It's more what's actually going to come out about how people can adopt crypto assets and digital assets in a different way in an easier form, because it is so complicated still. Yeah. And well, I, I will say this, you know, Godspeed to all the all the developers out there. Those of us who are non-developers, we couldn't do it without you. We really need you to work on the user interface and and create easier ways for non-technical people, the, you know, the 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 later adopters to come into this market, you know, those of us early adopt earlier adopters. Uh, you know, we're willing to take the time, but we need it to be as easy as possible. Keep going on all that. 
and 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 last point, you know, Wyoming is making a huge play for this market, and we really do want Bitcoin companies and blockchain companies mm. to come out to Wyoming. There are so many reasons to do that, but keep an eye on our legislative efforts. Uh, we're not done. We passed five bills in 2018. There are seven more proposed for 2019, and two that I think um, that are that are beyond the seven that will make the adoption of crypto just so much easier, including for big custodians. So uh, there's no reason why, you know, Silicon Valley needs to be the, the place where everybody ends up with, the, with this particular technology or New York. Uh, as Joe Lubin said when he came to Wyoming, there's no reason that why the next Google couldn't be invented here. And he's right. And, you know, keep us in mind. It, it, it's, it's the crypto friendliest place within the United States, and we're not done making it crypto friendlier. Amazing. Amazing. And um, one final question for you, Caitlin, before we finish. You seem to know a lot about crypto and, and Bitcoin. Are you Satoshi? No. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Oh, uh, search goes on. We're trying to find him. Oh, or her all day. I would, uh, all, I'm, all I can say is thank you to, to Satoshi for, <laughs> for, for giving us this amazing creation. You allowed us something we didn't have before, which is the freedom to opt out of this unstable and unfair status quo financial system. Uh, all of us owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude because for the first time we actually have the ability to opt out if we so choose and it's a choice and all of us uh you know take advantage of it if you want to but spend the time and get yourself educated there's no substitute for taking the personal time and educating yourself and that couldn't agree more and i don't know whether you actually even know the, the answer to this question caitlin but do you know how much it costs to invent Bitcoin in the first place? No, I don't. One Satoshi. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Very good. Uh, You're on that such note. an idiot. I really can't get rid of him. I am interviewing for his job at the moment. You would be a brilliant co-host, actually. How about you come on and we'll, we'll have you running it. No, you guys are great. Uh, um, Caitlin, this has been fantastic. Uh, I don't have any more questions. Stig, how about you? I'm all I'm all done. This has been immense. Amazing. Caitlin, awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much. Great fun. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance.